All right, looks like we've hit time, so we can go ahead and get started if you like. Greetings to you gentlemen who have joined us online. As always, uh, pop off your mic if you got something to add or some question or need for clarification. Today, we're going to have to, by necessity, do just a little bit of housekeeping. You're going to have to remind me if we've covered something, because <laughs> I can't remember, to tell you the truth, if we uh, went over it or not. Um, where we're at in the plot of our class is we have finished the parables in Luke's gospel. We're going to return to Mark, uh, his his parables that go toward the end of his gospel, the judgment parables of Jesus, are covered more extensively in Luke. We're going to just get one little Mark and parable at the end. And then we'll go into Matthew. That's where we'll, um, we'll need to do just a little bit of bookkeeping. Have we did, done this one or not? And then into the definitively new material uh, of Matthew chapter 25. And that's it. So we can see the finish line. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Let's open with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that we are of ourselves insufficient to study and to know your word. And therefore, we pray that you would enlighten our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit, that we might see your word, know your word, and then see and know all things by the light of your word. Forgive us our trespasses for the sake of Jesus, our Savior, and in the light of his grace, may we dwell before you this time together in fellowship around your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in Mark chapter 13, and you're going to see how this comes immediately after the lesson of the fig tree. The lesson of the fig tree is where we finished last week in Luke's gospel. So chronologically, we're roughly in the same place and then on to the next step. So Mark chapter 13, and then we're going to be looking at verse 32. And this will be a familiar setup, familiar imagery and familiar point. But the study Bible does list this as a separate parable and one unique to if I'm not mistaken, you need to mark. So at 32, of course, Jesus is engaged in this longer eschatological, longer end times discourse. At 32, he says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. And of course, this often rankles people, um, but it needn't necessarily, as the Athanasian Creed says, equal with the Father in respect to his divinity, less than the Father with respect to his humanity. Similarly, in Luke's gospel, we see Christ, the incarnate one, growing in wisdom and in stature. So he who knows all things and has all wisdom, yet grows in wisdom. So these are mysteries too great for us. This is why the incarnation, one who says, well, the incarnation isn't much of a mystery or I've got it all figured out, really hasn't begun to understand it or think about it. So nothing uh, to be scandalized here as far as I can tell. No one knows the day or hour except for that one prophet in that one church who you should probably pay attention to, even though he's been wrong seven other times. 
Yeah. <laughs> Verse 33, be on guard. So it's important to be on guard because of the attacks, the lies, the challenges of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. So that be on guard and uh, keep awake is the way that that is the posture, the spiritual posture the Lord would have us in. Whether or not we speculate that he's going to come in a thousand years or one day, he would have within his disciples the attitude of his imminent return and to always be prepared. That's the language of be on guard, keep awake, to always be prepared. So we are to live with that eschatological, that end times sense of any day could be our last and the Lord could surely return at any moment. And that's a spiritually healthy posture for us to uh, maintain. So be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And then here is the parable which illustrates this. It is like a man going on a journey, so very familiar motif. When he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. So you get this imagery of the of his slaves and the household, and very easy to see here Christ and his ascension into heaven is going away for a, for a time on a journey, um, and the church that he leaves behind. Verse 35, therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So I don't know, amongst the parables of Jesus, that may well be the most straightforward. <laughs> Any uh, any questions you have? Any uh, anything stick out to you as um, usual? A long time to stay away. Yeah, stay awake even in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it is um, certainly a, a point could be made of the of the fact that the staying awake is over the entire course of the night. So there is, you know, I don't know how prevalent it is in Mark's gospel, probably not as prevalent as it is in John's, but it is alluded to, it is kind of one of these New Testament themes of the night and the day. And um, here it is interesting to note that it's the evening, midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning. So over the course of the night to stay awake. Yeah, any other uh, thoughts, considerations? Yeah, I, I hear you say that it's playing the different light, the sun does it. Mm -hmm. Is that from his Yeah, I, th I think that that's fine. I, that, that expression is sometimes subject to a, abuse. That's, that's the only, but it's true. The way you put it is true and right, and we shouldn't quibble with it. But occasionally you'll get this Christology, this functional Christology of like, 
oh, now he's talking as God. Oh, now he's talking as man, right? This kind of thing. And I think that that does more harm than good, just in a sense, it's more distortive of a good, genuine Christology. I, you know, so that would be my only caution to that mode of speaking is it can be taken too far. I, I think that's exactly what the study note says, something to this effect, doesn't it? Um, let me find it here. 32. No one knows. Jesus speaks here as a man. See, that's where it's like, actually, it's a fine statement. There's there's nothing wrong with it per se. It's just that if if you kind of do this, like, now Jesus is a man, now Jesus is God thing, you end up distorting the, Im- the biblical image of Jesus. So don't do that. Stop short of that. And I, it's a factual enough statement that this is um, this ignorance, just as his growth in wisdom is a characteristic of his human nature. says that he's the master. He identifies as the master of the story. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I say to stay away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so to say that he just speaks to his Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, I agree. I'm totally sympathetic to it. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, if you want to pop the engine or if you want to pop the hood and look at the engine. Okay. So the three, uh, genuses um, of Christology, so of the hypostatic union, that's the hypostasis, the personal union of Christ, the hypostatic union. Um, You've got the genus idiomaticum, and that's the one we want to return to. And then the genus, what's the next one? Idiomaticum, and then myostaticum, and then apotelismaticum. Okay, so the idiomaticum is probably is probably the most helpful one here. And what the idiomaticum does is, okay, you can, what you find the scripture doing, that's really what this is. It's an observation about each one of these, a lochi, and an observation of what the scriptures teach. And what the scriptures teach is that the attributes of Christ's human nature can be applied to his whole person just as the attributes of his divine nature can be applied to the whole person. So you can say Christ, the God-man, does not know the day or hour. That's an attribute of the human nature applied to the whole person. But you could just as easily, and, and the scriptures do, take a divine attribute and apply it to the whole person. So, uh, That he is life, let's say, would be a fine example. So you can take a divine attribute and apply it to the whole person. So these things, this category, this way of speaking flows out of the scriptures, but it's very helpful in terms of uh, just being able to speak in an orthodox way, being able to recognize what the scriptures speak, how the church speaks, not fall into some manifest Christological error. The myostaticum, the genus myostaticum, that you can hear majesty in it, that's that the divine nature uh, can interpenetrate and work through the human nature in ways that the human nature itself cannot, you know, thus the human nature can do what a human nature cannot do. So a a very apropos example of this is Christ's body can be present in the sacrament in countless 
churches and on countless altars on any given Sunday or whatever the day is. Right? So the principle is the human body itself would be limited to finitude. But on account of the union with God, it's no longer subject to those bounds. So another example of this could be, though this is subject to some debate, in John's gospel, when they're all hiding in the upper room and the doors are locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus appears in their midst. Now, I tend to not like to pick on theologians too much anymore because we maybe need a little more harmony and a little less division in the body of Christ, but I'm going to pick here anyway. So John Calvin denies the genus myostaticum, and thus he ends up needing to say Jesus snuck into an unlocked window or Jesus somehow slipped into the room because for him, a human body can't do non-human things. Otherwise, it's not a human body. Uh, Hopefully you can see that that's a rationalistic bit, not a theological bit. But what in fact we see is that the human body of Christ, which of course would by nature be finite, by nature not be able to pass through walls or materialize in the midst of a locked room, on account of the hypostatic union with the divine nature, that human nature can do things that it otherwise couldn't. Now, the real short like theology 101 is this is just another way of saying God can do whatever he wants to do. Even with the human body, he can do whatever he wants to do. That's kind of <laughs> the 101 way of putting all that. And the epitelismaticum um, is really simply that uh, the whole man, and this is this is also maybe tangential to this thing we don't like, or, or we don't like this idea of like, well, now he's a man, now he's God, and that's right, and that's good. And the apotelismaticum uh, actually defends against this because it says anything that Christ does, he does in both his natures. He does as one. So the, the apotelismaticum, the, the action and activity of Christ is that of one person. You don't get to bifurcate Christ. Otherwise, you end up with two Christs, right? And you no longer have a hypostatic. You, you might have two boards glued together, but and thus they're one, but they're two separate boards. Um, that's So the apotelismaticum teaches against that, that the one Christ does everything. It's not quite the same as yeah in fact there's a lot of there's a lot of parallels there mm-hmm. yeah comparisons can be made between good trinitarian theology and good christology mm-hmm. pastor uh is the two boards glued together is that nestorianism or what would that be e- yes isn't that right uh nestorian nestorius would be yeah, two boards glued together. Otherwise, you've got the the mixing. Those are the two. So the mixing in such a way that it negates the full divinity. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, I need to refresh and, on all this stuff. It's getting rusty in here. Rusty. And the uh, reason, okay, then that's the reason we can say God died because whatever one does, the other one does in the in the 
We can say God dies, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Of course you can. So again, the, the important thing though to realize uh, is that this flows out of the scriptures. Okay. So one one example of this would be in Acts, uh, we get the phrase the blood of God. Now, if you don't have good Christology, that's going to throw you into tail, a tailspin really fast. Because you go, blood, that's a characteristic of humanity. Okay? But what you see here is the blood of God. Now, that's going to have effect on all three of these genii that we've been talking about, these genuses that we've been talking about. Um, but particularly the uh, myostaticum that, that Christ... Um, that, that the divine uh, assumes the humanity in such a way that that humanity is truly his, and you can say that his blood is the very blood of God. So then if it's the blood of God, could you say the death of God? Of course you could. So it, again, it's important to see that the categories flow from the scriptures and literal scriptural phrases uh, define the categories, and the categories just help you think clearly when you run into other various controversies. Yeah, so did God die? Yes. Did Mary have God in her womb? Yes. That's, uh, thus, she's the Theotokos, the God-bearer, which has less to say about Mary than it actually does to say about uh, who's in her womb, and that's really the origin of that confession, insisting upon Mary as the Theotokos, as the God-bearer, is insisting that it is, that Christ is truly God. And he's not like, he's not Hercules. He's not this amalgam of God and man that is neither God nor man. That's, that's confusing the substance in such a way that you lose both the divinity and the humanity. Okay, the opposite error is to so divide the substance that you've got this Nestoria um, two boards glued together. You've divided the substance into two. Yeah, so you don't have a formal teaching on the sinlessness of Mary in the Lutheran confessions. I think it would be safe to say the vast majority of Lutherans have probably rejected her sinlessness. But I do believe that it falls into one of those questions where as long as it's not made to affect any other doctrine, it's thought to be an open question that one could hold that and not be condemned. Because if you were to say that I think, you know, I think Mary is sinless, um, you know, what harm does that in and of itself do to the faith, due to the deposit of the faith? I mean, I personally don't think she was. <laughs> I think. When she says in the Magnificat, she refers to God as my savior, her savior. I think that implies that she's furthermore, usually where that really derives is from this idea of like, well, how could Christ be sinless if his mom was sinful? And there are a number of mechanisms, not least of which that old theological mechanism 101, God can do whatever he wants to do. He wants to take sinful humanity and make sinless humanity out of it, he can certainly do that. In fact, isn't he going to essentially do that in, in the resurrection? And this sinful flesh will be transformed into sinless flesh. So I don't. I think it's a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. 
And I think that that's really the origin of it. I don't think that there's clearly no scripture that says she is. Um, but it, but again, are we going to condemn someone for holding this opinion um, if it does no other harm to the deposit of the faith? I don't think we should. I, so in that sense, it's an open question. Yeah. Now, the perpetual virginity of Mary is a similar thing. Um, the perpetual virginity of Mary was held almost universally uh, up through the Reformation. Um, our confessions refer to it, not in a way that it's binding, but they do refer to it. Um, I don't forget about Luther, but there are other prominent Lutherans who hold to the perpetual virginity of Mary. I think Luther did too. Calvin did. Zwingli did. So all the quote unquote magisterial reformers held to the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now we've come a long time. Uh, that position is clearly the minority position, even in Lutheranism, to say nothing of Protestantism, you know, to say nothing of the forebears of Calvin and Zwingli. But you can just see how universal a teaching was and how it was believed, even though there's not any, thus saith the Lord. So important aside for us to identify open questions theologically and permit divergence of opinion. I mean, in the end, we'll all find out. <laughs> right. And it's just not, as long as you don't do anything with it beyond that, uh, what's the harm? Now, if you're, if you want the sinlessness of Mary to predicate her being the co-redemptrix and co-mediatrix, right, then now we've got a problem. Now, now it does make a material difference and the conclusion ought to be rejected. And I know that's not your, your position, John. I, that's a, that is a popular, uh, Roman Catholic piety right now. Okay, anything else we want to touch on here um, at the close of uh, the parables? Okay. All right, let's uh, pop over to Matthew. And Matthew is where we will conclude our study. I think the first place we want to go is Matthew 21. Okay, my notes direct me to 28. Eight. Let's see if I've got that right. Yes, this is. So if you, again, just to contextualize yourself, we're all, in terms of chronology of, of Holy Week here, we're all at roughly the same time. Because if you look at Matthew 21 and you just look back at verse 18, you're going to see the cursing of the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, the cursing of the fig tree, Jesus' authority being questioned. So we're in the same chronological ballpark. That's really my only point here. At verse 28, you have the parable of the two sons. And it does come as a result of what precedes. So just real quick run through of 23 following. He enters the temple. The chief priests and elders of the people come up to him as he's teaching. They said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus said, I will also ask you a question. If you tell me the answer, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. It's all familiar from Luke's gospel. The baptism of John, from where did it come, from heaven or from man? And they discuss it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And now immediately into the parable, what do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, 
go and work in the vineyard today. So the vineyard, obviously, a recurring motif and a motif for Israel. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. Metamelethes, he regretted it and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. So the father makes these two requests to the two sons. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Well, neither pleased the father. (laughs) Right? Uh, The one says he won't and then goes. I mean, the upfront disobedience and disrespect. But he does change his mind. He does regret it and go. And the other lies. The other says, uh, I go, um, but doesn't. So there's deceit. Okay, which of the two did the will of his father? Now, he poses this again. We're we're left to understand that these are the same scribes, Pharisees, the authorities um, who are, yeah, the priests and elders of the people, etc. Okay, so they said the first. That's their answer. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. In other words, you're right. You've answered correctly. The first did his will. And who who is represented by this first son? The tax collectors and prostitutes. Because they're the ones who up front and ostensibly said, no, we're not going. And this is all going to be borne out by Jesus' words. It's no, we're not going. But then John comes and says, be baptized, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And they change their mind and they repent and they're baptized. So, so far, it's just straight one-to-one. Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. They are, of course, the vineyard and the kingdom of God equated. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. Tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. I don't think it's a stretch at all to see the second son here as the chief priests and elders, the people who say to God ostensibly, hey, we go, we're faithful, we're in. But then God says, fine, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And they say, uh, yeah, no. So they say we're in, they say we'll go, but then they won't. Okay, so straightforward parable. And then as you can see, it goes into the parable of the tenants with the uh, ending culminating with the stone that the builders rejected. And I know we just recently covered that in Luke's gospel. So here the parable of the two sons, I think fairly straightforward. Again, I'm not going to belabor it, but if you have any uh, commentary or any insights, any things you see, any questions you have, all that's fair game. Pause here. Yeah. Praying to the saints. There's an old, one of the first written pieces of music was St. John. 
as the goat, be greater than the king. Or in that forgiveness, it's, it's saying you know, it's, it's prayer to St. John saying, purify our lips. Mm. I thought, well, I mean, you can marry. Yeah. Is there any, or is, is it ever appropriate to pray to the saints? Not really, is the, that's the short answer. Yes. So there seems to be some poetic license in addressing the saints, um, even within the Lutheran tradition. Uh, some of our hymns have poetic addressing of uh, like Mary or poetic addressing of the cross. Okay? Things that, you know, outside of the poetry of a hymn and the sort of meditation of what's going on, rather than the reality, you know, a concrete reality being expressed. I mean, we don't go around talking to wood, right? Uh, there's a poetry going on. That, that that all seems to be acceptable within the Lutheran tradition and the Western, yeah. So it's in the context of him. Okay. Yeah, yeah we sh- I should look at yeah. it. <laughs> but the idea of like, you know, addressing a saint to cleanse us or something like that or purify us, uh, yeah. that gets, yeah, that gets... Yeah, except they do. There's a whole bunch of deceitfulness there. It's just not straightforward. That's that's a lot of the problem with it. And you know, understanding in the history of the church where this develops can be very helpful too. Um, when the hairy pagan barbarians of Northern Europe uh, were, were not Christian and had encountered the gospel, very frequently you would pray to your ancestors, especially like on the eve of battle or something. You, know? you can, you can see, even see this kind of represented in Hollywood depictions of this time period. It's just commonly known. One of the acculturations of the Western church's mission north was to say, well, don't pray to the hairy pagans, pray to these people. They're holy and worthy of emulation, right? It was an acculturation and accommodation that never should have happened. But that's, that's the kind of origin. And then where this really picks up steam and starts to take the form that we see it in today is in the medieval period where there's black death everywhere, there's starvation everywhere, there's toothaches without Tylenol. Uh, Nobody believes the gospel because it's almost impossible to believe that God would actually love us. I mean, we we in our culture almost have the exact opposite. It's impossible to believe that God's going to judge and condemn anyone. Look at the look at the weather. Look at look at my sports car. Obviously, God loves me. And, you know, uh, so we've almost got the opposite error there. But so in that in that time period where it's just so nasty and you're I mean, you're lucky to live to 30 and half or more of your children die um, before they reach adulthood. It's just this bleak worldview. You can't believe that Jesus is this gracious savior. You believe he's the severe and wrathful judge. That's the material advent where it really takes root in the church proper as we cannot address Jesus himself. If we address his mother, she's nice and she can maybe get him to not be so nasty. And then if we, so it really kind of is an unspoken faithlessness and an unspoken shift in perception where the church in the West in particular 
ceases to see Jesus as gracious himself and is desirous of our prayers. And it would be much better and much more humble to just go to the saints and not trouble the big guy. And you can see again how all that's sort of an aberration, but it just helps you to see the theological milieu from which these doctrines emerge. It's not like someone, it's not like some monk in Germany is studying the scriptures and goes, what's this? St. Paul says we're supposed to pray to Mary. St. Peter says we're supposed to pray to the saints. We're not doing this. Let's reform back in field of the scriptures. That's not what happens. What's happening is the same thing that's happening today. You have a spirit of the age carries with it all kinds of errors, and you have the church foolishly accommodating that spiritual spirit of the age and falling into apostasy, or at least false belief. Isn't that part of Luther's theological revolution to give grace with some saint of a thunderstorm? Yeah, supposedly Saint Anne, and he probably did. Yeah, yeah, yeah help me, Saint Anne. Yeah, yeah. At least that's the line from the movie. Yeah, yeah. help me, Saint Anne. I'll become a monk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's all kind of silly, too. I mean, if you really get into it, it starts to become just unbelievable because you've got patron saints of all these different things. So you practically need a, like a theological phone book to like, OK, what am I suffering from? What saint do I need to pray? <laughs> I don't know. It's silly. <laughs> OK, maybe enough on that. We're, we're not being very ecumenical tonight, are we? <laughs> Going after Calvin and Zwingli and all of Rome. Well, what are we going to do? Okay, so there's the parable of the two sons. And um, again, you can see why it is that the, because sometimes this gets quoted out of context too, and sometimes in rather antinomian ways, but why it is that tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of heaven is not because Jesus commends them for their corruption and prostitution and says, okay, so since you are real serious sinners, you must really understand grace, which I can't tell you how many times I've heard this parable interpreted in such a way. Rather, it's when the call to repent comes, they listen. (laughs) They regret their sins, not continue in them that grace may abound. So uh, an important distinction um, to make, I suppose. Okay, that's the parable of the two sons. Anything else? Yeah, no, good. All right. So the parable of the tenants, you can see in 33 and following, um, we covered. Now, here's where we're going to have to do just a little bit of housekeeping. So if you turn to 22, chapter 1, it looks to me as though we have done the parable of the wedding feast. 22, verse 1. So this is the feast where, you know, okay, um, the king ends up destroying the people who won't come. And then um, he goes out and, and invites um, those. He invites others. Okay, they all come in and you've got the guy who's standing out with, the, he doesn't have the wedding garment and then he gets bound and thrown out. Does that ring a bell? Did we cover that in here? I think we did. Good. Okay. So then um, next up would be 24 and 2443. Which we, which we literally, oh, no, it's the thief. Okay, well, if we haven't done this exact one, because it's the soul stay awake motif again. Um, in this case, 
Um, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. So same theme, just a different picture. And I'm fairly certain now that I'm here that we've already been through that one as well. So I think that takes us on to 25 with the parable of the 10 virgins. If anybody sees anything we skipped or need to cover, let me know. But that's as best as I can tell uh, where we need to where we need to be. Okay, so 25 will take us into the last three. You're going to see the parable of the 10 virgins. And if you look over at 14, the parable of the talents. And then um, verse 31, uh, the final judgment. These are the last three parables we'll be looking at. And that will conclude our series. So at 25, verse 1, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. All right, um, maybe a note just right off the bat. The historic context and like what's happening here and how this all fits and was normal is very widely disputed among scholars and commentators. It's really hard to know. Um, oh, goodness. What's his name? Oh. I can't think of his name. Um, the guy that so we have a prof who uh, wrote the come to me probably, or Vicar chime in if you know. Um, our, our prof from Fort Wayne who wrote the Concordia commentary on Luke, um, Art Just, uh, quotes from this guy. It's like, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. I can see the cover. I just <laughs> just can't make out the name. Um, anyway, even really good scholars, this particular scholar is known for having spent decades in the Middle East and just like living in the culture and vibing the culture. You know who I'm talking about? It's like got a green and white, white cover. I know. Yeah, it's just terrible. Getting old. Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes. Um, I cannot think of his name. Bailey. Kenneth Bailey. Is that right? Okay. Let me know when you're there. Yeah, Kenneth Bailey, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. It's a great book, except for it ruins Christmas. Because <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't like the tradition that's built up, either in the East or the West, regarding the Christmas narrative. He's got a really different take on it, um, kind of demythologizes the, the narrative of Christmas. I, I don't know what I think about it. If he's right, I don't really want him to be. Uh, but... But it's a fun book and a good read because he really tries to show you through Middle Eastern eyes what these things would have meant. It's really helpful. Anyway, just cites him in his commentary about every other line. Uh, when he gets to this, um, the Ten Virgins, he's just kind of shakes his head. It's like, you know, look, I'm speculating here. There is no clear understanding of like why these virgins are out waiting and what they're doing, except for the most general of parameters. So I'll try to point those out to you as we go along. Just know that nobody really understands the backdrop here. Okay, nonetheless, 
10 virgins, they're taking their lamps, they're going to meet the bridegroom. Now, right off the bat, five of them were foolish and five were wise. So it's the word for foolish is where we get the word for moron, which I love. Five of them were morons and five were wise. Okay, so um, this is important here and it's important when we get to Jesus teaching on the judgment with the sheep and the goats. Because if you're looking how Jesus is already set up before they even do anything, five are morons and five are wise. So before we even do anything, we can understand that five are Christian and five aren't. Now, the fact that one is Christian or wise is going to reflect in what one does. Whereas if one is an unbeliever and thus foolish, that's going to reflect in what he does. So the the fruits of who they are bear themselves out in an obvious and manifest way. And Christ can point to the obvious and manifest fruit that's born itself out and say, look, that's what's definitive. But it always traces back to the root itself. Is this a sheep or a goat? Is this a wise one? or a foolish one. Make sense? Okay. So right off the bat, five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no no oil with them. I don't know. It's about like loading up your jet ski and bringing no gas, driving all the way to the lake. Uh, You don't do this unless you're a moron. Um, There's like no reason. Why on earth would you bring empty lamps? Okay, so they've got lamps with no oil. Now, it may be the case that there's no backup oil, but even so, um, this is a moronic move. Contrasted with verse 4, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed... They all became drowsy and slept. So do note here that all sleep. So whereas in other parables of Jesus, sleeping is the thing you don't want to do. um, All of them sleep here. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins, that is all ten, rose and trimmed their lamps Even if it wasn't dark before, it's dark now. So they're trimming their lamps and getting them ready to light. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. So as they went to relight them, obviously they're going out. There's no oil in the tank. Or if they left them burning, it's at the end stages. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy at midnight, so yet another oddity of the story. While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Okay, so they were ready and that resonates obviously. 
So they're wise and their wisdom bears out in their being ready. The others are foolish and they're not ready for his coming. And I think that that's very clear, isn't it? I mean, there's foolish who don't believe in Christ. They're foolish all around us. Um, if you like, some people will say this is in the church. It's fine to think on too, that there's unbel- maybe the unbelievers in the church who aren't ready. Um, thus, they're all virgins. That's been a popular sermonic usage uh, throughout the centuries. But nothing in the text that specifically indicates that. Either way, you have two kinds. One is wise and ready. The other is foolish and not ready for his coming. Okay, then 11, afterward, the other virgins came also. Now, we're not told if they get oil, if they stumble their way there. We're just not given any details. No details at all. Perhaps they're in the dark based on what's said, but again, it's just too much speculation. We don't know as much as we'd like to know. So they come, verse 11, saying, Lord, Lord. And of course, if you you remember those words from Matthew 7, uh, the gospel text that Vicar preached on this last Sunday. Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Now, is that on account of there there not being any oil? Their faces aren't lit up? He can't tell who they are? Possibly. But whether whether or not that particular fact is true, he says what he says. I do not know you. Now, that's the end of the parable. So, as it were, he turns to his disciples and says, so here's the moral of the parable. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So then, what would of what would that watching consist It would certainly consist in retaining the wisdom that God has given you and remaining a wise virgin and being always ready for his coming. Now, the mechanism of that is having oil, but the point is to be wise and to be ready. What's the oil? Well, the oil, frankly, could be anything. It could be whatever is, maybe let me put it this way, a lack of oil could be anything that makes it so that you're not ready or so that you're showing yourself to no longer be wise. So it's a little bit of an ambiguity and you can watch different preachers put in, you know, what is the oil? And it's like, whatever they want, (laughs) whatever they want to hit their congregation with, you know, it's a little bit the same, like, what is the, what is the wedding garment that the man lacks? And you can look at the, all the preachers, um, in the church, and it's always like, I mean, for Christendom, of course, it's like the wedding garment is charity to the poor. <laughs> it's like whatever their bugaboo is, whatever thing they want to get across their congregation, that's the thing that's lacking and the thing that's needed. So I don't know. I find that amusing. and But I also, I, I kind of find it the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, too, that he leaves certain things ambiguous in such a way that they serve a preacher in any time and place to put in what he needs to put in. It's not the oil per se that matters. It's the wisdom and the readiness. The oil indicates the readiness, right? It's it's sort of a, the thermometer that indicates the, the fever. It's the, do you, do you have oil? Then obviously that's an indicator that you're wise and ready. 
So what are, you, what are, what are your thoughts? It's almost like a temple because they were to keep the lamp lit all the time. And that's what their job was. So if they're looking at the oil, that would be the same thing. They're saying, hey, this, the lamp's supposed to be lit 24-7. You're supposed to be putting the on oil. They were told that. Lincoln Poops didn't. Some of them did, some of them didn't. You see that throughout the Old Testament. Don't yeah. let it go out. Yeah. Because they're trying, having to rededicate. Yeah. Like There's this kind of element of like, do you care? Yeah. So, you know, if you really, if you're going on a fishing trip and you really care because you want to go fishing and you want to maximize your time fishing, you're going to make sure that you have everything and you're going to check it twice. If you don't care, you're likely to forget the hooks. Or the power bait or whatever, because who cares, right? I mean, when my wife wants me to do things that I maybe don't want to do, I have to have her re-go through my packing list. Because if you don't really care, you might just omit, you know, by complete accident, of course, the swimsuit. Or, you know, certainly remember the, the whiskey, but not, you know, maybe some other details of the trip. So, yeah, I think in the background here is sort of this idea, if you care... You'll pay attention. You know, if, if these virgins, since they were wise, they cared, they made sure they brought oil. Um, if the, the, the unwise, they didn't care. I mean, to a point of negligence, it's just criminal almost. You know, it's, they don't care. They don't even think about it. So I think that that's kind of an, an element of this parable too, um, is you, you have some that are just so foolish and so, you know, they're kind of going through the motions, but they don't really care if they did they would have taken the time to make sure everything was right so foolish negligent all of those things i think tie together here pastor i have a comment and that um it's when we're reading this where some virgins are ready and some are not i'm reminded of the uh parable of the seeds that fall some take in the stony ground and some uh, shallow and others are fertile and so since it's like he's teaching the disciples something and that was about his word, I believe, the, the seeds. Mm-hmm. Now he has them on the Mount of Olives and he's talking to them. At, I think this would be later, if I'm not, uh, if I'm correct, that later in his ministry, he's going towards Jerusalem. So now it's coming down to brass tacks because these, isn't he just talking to his disciples and teaching them? And this is where the, the- theology would maybe uh, take more root into the disciples' understanding because they're par- they're similar. So it's he has a unique way of keeping some central thought while teaching different themes. I don't know. That's just my observation. Yeah, in Matthew, you're. I mean, you're right. In a general sense, Matthew's gospel here. We're on the fifth discourse, and it's the eschatological discourse or the end times discourse. This is the this is part of the last substantive teaching of Jesus. In Matthew's narrative, we're right on the edge of uh, Maundy Thursday here. So, yeah, in a sense, it's where it all coalesces. Again, I, I think that Jesus does us the favor in 13 of interpreting this as fancy as we want to get. The moral of the parable is spelled out by Jesus. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. What does the watching consist of? Being wise, being prepared, caring. Yeah. 
And I think I, I don't think it gets much more complicated. I mean, anything more complicated than that is extra credit. Mm-hmm. I think it's that simple. Pastor, do uh, is it keeping the lamps trimmed and burning have anything to do with the, uh, the eternal flames, whatever it's called, in the chancel? Or would that be more like Matthew? I think it's eight twelve. I am the light of the world. Oh, finally, uh, I get to pick on the Lutherans. And now I get to pick on everyone. See, I'm not discriminating. Uh, this uh, the eternal the eternal candle in the sanctuary. It really doesn't have anything to do with this. So this comes out of Rome as an indicator that the consecrated elements, the body and blood of Christ, are in the tabernacle and thus there to be worshipped. So you have the light. So if you go into a Roman Catholic place, uh, you know, sanctuary, let's say, and they've got a tabernacle there, there's times where that light will, the red light will be on or off. And that's indicating to you whether or not, you know, again, this is their theology. I'm not make, trying to make some kind of objective comment here, but their theology is whether or not the body and blood of Christ is there. Okay. Somehow we lost the plot and, and or just liked it so much. <laughs> <laughs> we just decided we're going to have ours on all the time. Uh, but prior, but but really prior to Rome, you don't have that as a practice. And it's sort of a practice without a rationale. And the rationale has been tacked onto it after the fact, the rationale being like, God is always here. I don't know that we needed a candle to indicate that, you know, but... So it's a harmless thing. I'm not trying to be nasty. It's a harmless thing. And obviously we've got one in here and I haven't torn it out of the wall or had a Luther moment. I mean, it's fine. It doesn't matter. But it is kind of one of these humorous things where what it really shows is a slippage in the ability to speak church language, even if that language is visual. So I get get to be a little critical of the Lutherans tonight. Yeah. And, and again, I think in this parable, despite the, you know, the song we all learned in vacation, Bible school, give me oil in my lamp, keep it burning, burning, burning. You know, there's really no, no indication or no emphasis that the continued burning of the lamp is what's important here. They wake up and trim their lamps just as they all fell asleep. It may well be the case that their lamps all went out. That's not the point, right? The point is, do they have, you know, are they wise and did they care enough to have what they need when they needed it and be able to fa- be prepared for the bridegroom's return? That's really the material question. The, the oil is just kind of a barometer of that. But it, whether the lamps burn or go out, whether they're awake or asleep, just isn't in view in this particular parable. So does that kind of help there? Barry, I know you were trying to get a word in edgewise. Did you? Did we. How do we avoid this becoming a work? Be prepared, be wise. I think you answered be wise in Christ, just like you said in the Proverbs. Yeah. Christ, and so connect online to him. Uh, but being prepared, I guess at least somebody praying on their Well, certainly a good thing to do all that. Um, don't want to dissuade anyone from that but i think um but then i mean somebody would say well i didn't pray enough last so i i wasn't watchful you know yeah yeah i 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Again, I'm not necessarily sure I'd discourage that. <laughs> that might be, a, might be a great meditation to have. Uh, so I, I don't know that I'd want to dissuade someone from that from that view. Um, but the, but I think your point's well taken. It would just benefit us to see the world through a slightly more stark frame and that frame of the scriptures. That is, to be an unbeliever is in the it doesn't matter what your intellect is, how many degrees you have, how many awards you've won, how many accolades you've received from the world, how many history textbooks your name ends in. Biblically speaking, if you don't believe in Christ, you're a fool. Full stop. When you are baptized, you are in, illumined and enlightened. You're no longer a fool. By virtue of, if nothing else, by virtue of your faith in Christ. So to be a baptized Christian is of necessity to be wise. And thus it's an identity that's not contingent upon one's performance per se. Right now, maybe if a wise, if a wise person um, betrays that identity and acts like a fool, well, at some point in time, sure they become a fool, you know, but that's not what's in view here. The view isn't like once saved, always saved. Um, the view is if you're if you're a baptized Christian waiting for the return of the bridegroom, you're wise. So just, you know, watch, you know, neither the day or the hour. Don't grow lazy. Don't grow complacent. Don't stop caring. Don't despair. That's what the fools are doing who aren't really the believers. Please. You were saying that another use of oil other than just burning is the anointing, right? So Christ is the anointing. So you've got oil, you've got Christ. Yeah, oil's everywhere out there. I mean, wherever, yeah, oil, they cook with it. It's their medicine. It's like their soap. I mean, it's just olive oil in particular is just everywhere and does everything. It's like water. It's like bread. Um, it's like wine. Yeah. There are no one to talk about last time, but we should be looking forward to this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it's not a work necessarily. It's you know, think about it and, and, you know, it's a wonderful thing to reflect on. Yeah, absolutely. So there is, I, I do think this uh, that this is tilted toward the side of judgment in the sense of warning, um, because obviously you don't want to be shut out and have the Lord say, I don't know you. And we're given more detail on that side of the coin than we are on what happens on the inside. But, uh, you know, uh, your point's well taken we should be longing for his return that we will enter with him into the wedding feast and no longer have to deal with the darkness, no longer have to deal with the uncertainty of what's outside, just nothing but being with the bridegroom and rejoicing. Yeah. The reflection yeah, please. I have is that the foolish young and the wise were there to meet the bridegroom. The mm-hmm. foolish ended up leaving and not being there to meet the bridegroom. Mm-hmm. So I'm, we're not told that they were required to have oil or lamps ready to store, but they got distracted from the point of being there to the extent that they weren't even there when the bridegroom showed up. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering hypothetically, suppose that they were a little bit less foolish and they were sitting there with dark. Lamps because mm-hmm. they had run out for it. Mm-hmm. I wonder how that would play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Who knows? Maybe maybe the bridegroom would have provided them. So, yeah, 
there, I mean, there's all kinds of oddities there and it might be worth considering or exploring. I don't know. I don't know how fruitful it is. It's certainly what we do as we're preparing sermons, but some of these details just don't make a heck of a lot of sense. And oftentimes that means there's something fascinating to be considered there. You know, when he, when they say go buy oil for yourselves and they go, I mean, we're, we're just told it's midnight. And they and they do in fact go, maybe because they're fools. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? All right. So next week, the parable of the talents, which we can compare um, with the minas in Luke, and if they're different parables, um, if we compare those two, that might be all the further we get. Um, if we either don't compare them or do that efficiently, we may well um, conclude the parables uh, next week. The final parable is that of the sheep and the goats that I've alluded to already. And it's a fairly straightforward one, I think, as far as parables go. All right, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.